Good morning. We want to return this morning to our series of messages on famous people of the Bible. And we come to an interesting little book, as you can see up on the screen, the book of Ruth. Interesting book. I mean, you get the whole gamut of expressions and emotions in this book. If a video camera were running back in that time, you would see expressions of joy and happiness and exhilaration and expressions of despair and sadness and anger and it just runs the whole gamut. And what we read in the book of Ruth in many ways just reflects all of our life stories. Any life that is lived long enough, you're going to experience the things that are experienced here. But as I read the book of Ruth, there's a question that comes to my mind, and I don't know if I've necessarily got the best answer for it, but the question is, why is this book even in the Bible? You ever think about that? I mean, the book of Ruth is just different. It, it doesn't seem to be a book of the Bible. It doesn't read like other books in the Bible. I mean, it, it just doesn't seem to belong to the, to the same genre, the same kind of literature. It, it comes at the time of judges, but there's not a mention of a judge in the book. It doesn't seemingly appear to be about even the nation of Israel. So why is the book of Ruth here? I mean, at first glance, you read the book, it seems like what you've got is just a story of a family, a family that is really of no importance especially, no prominence, no special significance. They just go through a lot of difficult times. So why is the book of Ruth even in the Bible? A question to consider. It's a story about a man named Brady. No, I'm sorry. It's a story. People in the second service probably won't get that, will they? So, kind of date you. It's a story about a husband named Elimelech and his wife named Naomi. Don't have a picture of Naomi, but we do know what her name means. It means fragrant. It means pleasant. It means sweet. And it seems to capture her life early on. In fact, later in the book, she describes herself as being full, as being satisfied. I'm sure that's probably how she felt on her wedding day as she stood there with Elimelech, and she and her husband commit their lives to one another. I think there's probably a look of excitement and happiness and anticipation, and then things seem to really go well because it's not that long that, according to plan, probably they have children born, two sons in particular, but then when we pick up in her story, the expression changes. And I think probably there's a look of confusion and worry, fear maybe. Because there's been a famine that takes place in the land. And the famine just keeps going on. A famine that is so severe that they can no longer stay where they are. And you know, I, I think for us living in this time, in this country, and with the culture that we have, I think it's hard for us to imagine what they went through, to really identify with this. But, but, but let's try to personalize it just a little bit. Imagine that your husband comes home from work and you can tell it's not been a good day. You try to talk to him about it, but he doesn't want to talk about it. 
He turns on the TV and sits there, but he's really not watching the television. Then finally that night, as you're laying in bed in the darkness, he finally talks. And he says, they let me go at work today. And you try to encourage him, try to say all the right things. Well, it'll be okay. We'll, we'll get by. It's not going to last. Things will get better. Things will turn around. But, but they don't. And six months later, you've depleted most of your savings, sold your car, sold your house, moved into a tiny little apartment. Two years pass, and now it's not just affecting your family, but the whole region. Everyone seems to be impacted by it. And your biggest concern now is just what you're going to eat for the next meal. And how are you going to feed those two boys that are growing and, and they're hungry? And Have you ever known that kind of hunger? Most of us probably haven't. And then you stop and think about the things that you used to think about. And you, and you think, why did I ever stop and think about those things? I mean, I, I, I can't believe I used to think about my retirement or my portfolio or my wardrobe or what I was going to wear the next day because now those things are totally unimportant. Now all you can really think about is, what are my boys going to eat? And you go up to their rooms at night, you kneel down by their beds to pray with them, and their growling stomachs make it hard to hear their nightly prayers. Things have just become desperate. And finally, your husband says, we can't go on like this. We can't stay here. We're going to have to move. Got to try something different or we're not going to survive this. And I think that's, that's what happens to Naomi and Elimelech to her husband. They have to move. They have to go somewhere and try something. They don't have food to eat. And so they move to the land called Moab. And I don't think we can fully appreciate that either what they're going through here. I mean, you have to understand what it's like for them. The promised land, Israel, Judah, that, that's a part of who they were. It was part of their identity. Every family had a piece of land designated to them in the promised land that would be passed on from generation to generation. And you just didn't up and leave your piece of land. It's part of who they were, and it must have been absolutely desperate for them to pack up and leave. But not only that, they go to Moab. Moab. It's a very pagan culture. It's in people that follow God. And what you have in Moab is a lot of prejudice towards the Israelites because the Moabites are the sworn enemies of God. And so they go to this very hostile country because they just need food to eat. And maybe they've heard that the ground is more fertile there, or at least there's food there, so that's where they go. And maybe as they're leaving, Naomi looks around and thinks, man, we've just lost everything, but our home, our land, but I've got my husband, and he's a, he's a good man, and he takes care of us and the boys, and I've got my two boys, and they're healthy and strong, and I've got God, I've got my faith, and you know what, if I've got that, I'm okay. And maybe she thought that. In fact, she even says later in the book that when she left her town for Moab, that she left feeling full. 
But they get to Moab and her husband gets sick. And he doesn't get better. He gets weaker and weaker and eventually he dies. So now she's a single mom, a widow, in a pagan culture in Moab, a hostile country trying to raise two boys. The two boys grow up and they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And they get married and finally it seems maybe there's, there's some better days ahead. And the clouds are clearing. It's good news for Naomi and for her family. Two weddings, but these two weddings are followed fairly quickly, evidently, by two funerals as both of her boys die. No time for grandkids. And after Naomi, she's, she's lost her husband. Now she's lost both of her sons. Don't you think she's just feeling an incredible grief? Sadness and despair. Edgar Jackson defines grief like this. He says, grief is a silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone that's no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying good night to the one who has died. Grief is a Helpless wishing that things were different when you know they're not and they will never be again. And some of that, some, some of you get that. Because you've been through that. And you know what that's like. But maybe some of you don't. But you will. None of us are exempt from this. And if it's not already here, it's coming. And Naomi experiences what would seem to be just an inordinate amount of loss, just one thing after another. And, and that's how Naomi felt, that, that all that's left is just this pile on the floor, broken pieces, and she can't put it back together. She's lost everything, and so she decides she really didn't have much choice now but to go back home and just hope that things are better back home in her small town. And so she tells her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, Look, you girls stay here, your young women stay in your homeland of Moab, you're young enough, you've got time to remarry and have a family, but I have to go back. And Orpah agrees to stay, but Ruth, her daughter-in-law, just refuses to stay. And so Ruth says to her in chapter 1, verse 16, she says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And so here's this daughter-in-law saying this to her mother-in-law. And you've probably heard that text before, right? Uh, that's, this text is the text that sticks out to us from the book of Ruth. And more than likely, you've heard that text used at a wedding. Because oftentimes, that's a scripture that's read at a wedding as the bride and groom stand in front of each other and express their love and devotion. But you know, if we're really going to be accurate with that text, what should happen in the wedding is that the bride should turn away from the groom towards her new mother-in-law. And say, where you go, I will go. And where, <laughs> and somehow I don't think that's a tradition that'll catch on. 
you know. But that's what's happening here. This is just a very special relationship that is formed between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. And the Bible says when Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth and Naomi make a difficult journey back to Naomi's hometown. They go across the mountains, and her hometown is Bethlehem. And we start to get some indication as to why this story may be in the Bible. Bethlehem, a town of probably less than 200 people at that time. So when Naomi returns, it's big news. Everybody notices. I mean, people start to talk. They say, is this her? Kind of looks like Naomi, but, but if, it, if that's Naomi, she sure doesn't look good. And remember that her name means pleasant or sweet. And they say, is this really Naomi? But Naomi says, look, don't call me that name anymore. Because God has made my life bitter, not sweet. And here's what Naomi says, Ruth chapter 1. She says, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. What kind of expression do you think she has on her face when she says that? Anger, don't you think? Who's she blaming? God, every time. Yeah, She's angry, mad at God because he's not held up his end of the deal like she thought he would. This is not the way her story's supposed to go. It wasn't supposed to happen like that. And so she says, look what God has done to me. He's made my life bitter. He's brought this misfortune upon me. It's his fault. He's afflicted me. Any of that sound familiar? You just reach this point where it feels like what you'd hoped for, what you felt like God was going to deliver or give you just, just hadn't worked out. And so you read here in the book of Ruth of Naomi, and, and again the question is, what's this story all about? Why is it in here? What's it about? And you may read it and think, well, it's easy. This story is about loss. It's about loss. A woman who just loses. She loses her home. She loses her husband. She loses her sons. It's a story about loss. Well, I can see that. But let me ask you this. Does this story have to be about loss? Does it have to be about that? And yeah, she loses a lot, going through incredible pain and loss, but does it have to be about loss? Is that what the story has to be about? There's a guy by the name of Jerry Sitzer, who was a professor at Whitworth College out in Spokane, Washington. And a number of years ago, he was in a car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver in a minivan. And he lost three generations that were in the vehicle with him. He lost his mom, he lost his wife, and he lost his young daughter. But he was okay. He wasn't hurt. And in this interview, he just talked about what, what that was like. And he has written more than one book, but he wrote a book about this experience, about going through that journey and the book is entitled, A Grace Disguised. A Grace 
disguise. You can get it on Amazon, by the way. And here's what he says. He says, the experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. Now, it's one thing for me to say that up here, but it's something else when he says it. When he's been through that, he says the defining moment can be our response to the loss. The story doesn't have to be about the loss. The story could be about our response to the loss. In other words, we don't get to decide what roles we play in the story of life, but we get to decide how we play the roles that we're given. And so you just reach this point in loss. You reach this point where you just decide, is this going to define me? Is this what my life is going to be all about? Is my story just going to be a story of loss? Is that it? Or, or could it be about something different? And that's hard. And I think it was hard for Naomi not to just get caught up in the pain of loss. I think we tend to get focused on what's happening right in front of us. And maybe Naomi just can't get the picture of death out of her head and the disappointment. And so she says, don't call me sweet because I'm bitter. I left full and I've come back empty. But here's what we're going to see in her story. Because if there's one word that could describe her story, the word's not loss. The word is redemption. Redemption. Naomi thinks she's coming back empty, that God has abandoned her, but if she could just wipe away the tears long enough, she would see that God really was at work in the midst of what seems to be incredible loss, that God was at work redeeming her story. And so when you look at this, some ways that God redeems, he redeems her story of loss with an unlikely relationship, an unlikely friendship. God has a way of doing that. We experience loss, we experience grief, and he'll bring along someone that gives us the strength to get through. And, and oftentimes what we find is that when God does that, it's, it's not a person that, that we would think it would be. And that's true. It's true here. Who would have guessed that her daughter-in-law from Moab would be the one that she would have this close, connected relationship with, that, that she would love this way? In fact, later on in the text, when the village gets to know Ruth, even though she's from Moab, it says in chapter 4 and verse 15, that they said to Naomi that her daughter Ruth is better than seven sons. So in the midst of her grief, she has this friendship that helps redeem the story. Of course, it's interesting that she tries to keep Ruth away and tells her, no, you stay here in your home and find somebody to marry and have a family with. I'll go by myself. And I think we do that. Sometimes when we go through incredible loss and incredible grief, we've just got a tendency to push people away instead of pull them close. But here's the thing. We just need somebody to say it's okay. It's going to be okay. It's normal that you're feeling this way. I understand what you're going through. I've done it before. I've been there before, and it'll be okay. We'll be all right. By the way, that's what the church is all about, isn't it? That God redeems the loss that is inevitable in our fallen world by surrounding us with brothers and sisters in Christ that we can grab by the arm and say, I just need someone to tell me 
it's normal that I feel this way and that it's going to be okay. The church is so important, folks. So God redeems the lost through this unlikely friendship, this unlikely relationship. But we also see God redeems lost through an undeserved kindness of a man named Boaz. Boaz was a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. And you read the book, or I, I, I don't want to go into great detail about their, their culture and the things that they, they would do at that time because it's going to seem culturally weird to us, but if a man died and There were times where what was called a kinsman redeemer would step in. If there were no, I mean, the closest relative could step in, buy property, redeem and inherit the wife. And we think, that sounds kind of weird. It was very cultural what was happening there. And again, the promised land was set up in such a way that each family had their designated piece of land. It was not to leave the tribe that they belonged to. So if the heir dies, and both of the boys were dead now, it would fall to the closest relative to redeem that loss. And they would redeem the loss by buying the property and marrying the widow and then having a descendant with the widow that would carry on the name of the one that was deceased so that that name wouldn't be blotted out from Israel and then would also inherit the family's property. And Boaz was a close relative and he could be a kinsman redeemer. And he comes along and says, I'll buy the property and I'll take responsibility for Ruth. And it's just no, no small act of kindness and sacrifice here, especially when you consider that Ruth is a Moabite and the men of that area in Bethlehem would have had nothing to have done with her. But here's Boaz who goes out of his way to redeem her. Why? Well, it turns out you know the mother of Boaz. Her name is Rahab. That shady lady from Jericho that we've already studied the prostitute, the harlot, the foreigner who helped the Israelites when they took the promised land. It turns out that Rahab and her husband had a son and she named him Boaz. And Boaz grew up to be a man that honored God and provided for and protected those who were less fortunate. And so Boaz shows this undeserved act of kindness here. God uses that to redeem the story. And then God redeems the story with kind of an unpredictable ending because the story of Ruth ends with a genealogy. And you read there that they gave birth to a son and they named him Obed. Obed grows up and marries and he and his wife give birth to a son and they name him Jesse. Jesse marries and he and his wife have at least about seven sons and the youngest of them they named David, King David, that we'll probably talk about next week. And you read that genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth, and, and I hope you think to yourself, I've heard that before, and you have, in the Christmas story. 
Matthew chapter 1, almost word for word, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because Ruth chapter 4 ends with David. Matthew chapter 1 begins the same way Ruth ends as it points to Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer. So who would have guessed that God was taking all the broken pieces on the floor and turning them into this incredible, incredible piece of art? Something very beautiful. And what I love about the story of Ruth is it's different from the other stories and accounts of people's lives that we've already looked at in this series. We go, there doesn't seem to be some great miracle or act of God here. I mean, stop and think about Abraham. Abraham had this audible voice that says, don't lay your hand upon your son when he's about to sacrifice Isaac. Moses had the burning bush, and Jonah had the whale, Noah had the ark, but you don't see that stuff in the book of Ruth. You don't see some some overt or obvious act. There's no splitting of the Red Sea. There's no closing of the mouths of lions. Nothing like that. But you, you get to the end of the story, and here's what you know for certain. God was at work. God was at work. That's the message. That's the message of the story. God is at work. And he's at work in your life, too. If you can get your eyes on him. He's at work. And you may think it's too late, things may seem too broken, but God's at work. And maybe it doesn't seem obvious, and his hand is not necessarily apparent in your life, but God is at work. And it may not be dramatic, and it may not be immediate or instantaneous, but God is at work. Your story does not have to be about loss. Your story can be about redemption, giving God a chance to work. And not only was he redeeming the story of Naomi and Ruth in this little book of the Bible, but giving birth to David, who ultimately on down his family line, one would be born that would be called the son of David, the son of man, Christ Jesus. And God really redeems everybody's story in the birth of Jesus Christ because he's the one in whom we find redemption the forgiveness of our sins what is redemption one man defines it this way redemption is buying back something that once belonged to you and so God buys us back what's the price he paid to buy us back The blood of his son. The blood of his son. Old story, I've probably shared it with you more than once, but I love the little story of a little boy that built a toy boat and put it out in, in the ditch once it had rained and there was water there. And he was so proud of that little toy boat as it's floating down the ditch, but then it starts to get away from him and gets into a little larger ditch and he can't get out there. And it finally just floats away, and he's got tears in his eyes as he watches his little boat sail away. But then, not too long after that, he's walking down through the streets of town, and there's a pawn shop. And in the front window is his toy boat. And he wonders, how did it get there? And he goes in, and he sees it, he picks it up, and he hugs it, 
And he says, mister, this is my boat. This is my toy boat that I made. But he finds out it's got a price on it now. And he can't just walk out of the store with it. He has to buy it back. And so he works and he scrapes up some pennies and a little bit of money until he's got enough. And it's still there and he goes in and he buys back his little boat. And as he walks out of the store, he says, little boat, you are mine. No, you are twice mine. I made you and now I bought you. And that's what God's done for us. He's redeemed our story. He made us, and he's bought us with the blood of his son. Have you accepted that? Have you claimed the redemption that God brings to your life story through his son, Christ Jesus? And if you haven't, why not do it today? You talk about good news. You talk about the story not being about loss, but about redemption. God can redeem anyone's story, anyone's. And if you need that today, meet me down front as we stand and sing.